My name is uh, Dr. Thomas Richard Beaver, B-E-A-V-E-R. Good morning, Dr. Beaver. Good morning. What's your profession? I'm a forensic pathologist. And uh, tell us what a forensic pathologist is. Yes, a uh, forensic pathologist is a physician who has been specifically trained to determine the cause, manner, and mechanism of death in cases of uh, un uh, unexplained death. Um, so did you have an opportunity to perform an autopsy on Samantha Josephson? Yes, sir, I did. All right, so tell us, let's start with photographs. Um, approximately how many photographs did you take? Uh, 170 photographs. Okay. Why so many? Um, well, there were a lot of injuries. Okay. Now, as Ms. Josephson uh, was presented to you on, uh, in March of 2019, uh, what was her uh, body weight and height? Yeah, she was uh, 69 inches tall, and she's weighed 160 pounds. All right. And you alluded to some of this a moment ago. Um, when she presented you, um, what was it that you saw that grasped your immediate attention? Um, the, 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 there were two things first. The first thing was that she had an extensive amount of in insect activity on the surface of the body. And the second thing, pretty much at the same time, was that she had many stab wounds uh, over the surfaces of the body. Yes, yeah, so she has um, uh, bruising over the forehead and the right side of her face. She has a stab wound in the eyebrow. She has a number of other stab wounds on the right side of the face. And now, may, I, may I interrupt you for a moment? You said a stab wound to the eyebrow. Yes, sir. Okay, so a moment ago you mentioned you take x-rays, correct? Yes, sir. And one of the reasons you take those, as you said, was to see if there may be uh, damage to a, a weapon, to a knife? Yes, sir. That's, this uh, is pr the primary reason. When I saw these stab wounds to the head, the skull is a very hard bone, very thick, and stabbing the skull frequently results in the knife bending or breaking. And so um, it immediately alerted me to take x-rays because we might have a piece of the knife actually embedded in the skull. Thank you, sir. Please continue. So I find that um, she also has a, a, an abrasion on the corner of the eye, and as I said, some bruising. Um, the right eye is somewhat uh, collapsed, and that's um, probably from some trauma to it. And, um, that's, and then there's hemorrhaging to the periorbital tissues, the tissues around the eye. It's got a black eye, basically. Let's talk about that word you just mentioned just there, hemorrhaging. Um, is there a way to determine if wounds take place if a person is living or post-mortem when they're dead? Yes, sir. Okay. Sure. So hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging is an active process, and it requires a blood pressure. So when the person's alive, their heart's beating, they have a blood pressure. All right. And so in this case, you said hemorrhaging? Yes, sir. She has hemorrhage. Okay. So which suggests she was alive when these wounds were inflicted? Yes, sir. All right. So please continue as you were describing state's exhibit number 342. Um, there are also some uh, wounds um, in the hair that we can see. And so behind, uh, on the right side of the head, behind and kind of above the right ear, there were multiple uh, stab wounds. So stage three, four, six. Take a look at that. Do you recognize that picture? Yes, sir, I do. Um, tell, us, tell us what you see there. Okay. Um, 
it's another picture taken at the time of autopsy. And uh, again, she's in the supine position. Um, this is not as close up as the other photos. Also in this room, in this picture is a probe. Part of what I mentioned before about determining the depth of the wound is place a probe in the wound and then um, and then that way we were able to tell the depth of this wound and its approximate path. Can you show the jury or on yourself, can you point to the area uh, on yourself where that probe was placed? Yes, it's right uh, kind of below and behind the ear. And did you measure that probe at some point? Um, yes. Okay, how deep was that wound? Uh, it, probe, it probes to a depth of 3.6 centimeters. Okay. What? type of damage would a wound that goes 3.6 centimeters, excuse me, do you say centimeters? No. Centimeters, yes. Centimeters into the area that you just showed, what type of effect could that have based on your medical experience? Yes, it can go into the skull and into the brain okay. and that would, that would be a serious wound. Okay. Life-threatening? Yes, sir. Okay. And how long would it take a person to die from these wounds? Um, the injuries to the brain and the carotid artery are fairly severe and would the, the bleeding would be profuse and very rapid. So um, I would say a matter of minutes, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, maybe 20. Samantha Josephson had been stabbed over 100 times in the back of that vehicle, repeated blows that covered multiple areas of her body. Unable to escape, she could do nothing but twist and turn and try to fight off her attacker. One other fact captured by the analysis of Roland's cell phone data was indicative of the sick mind that was operating inside this individual. After the most brutal of murders, with his victim's blood on his clothes and all over the back seats of his vehicle, Nathaniel Rowland looked at a porn site on his cell phone. State prosecutors continued their timeline into the early hours of Friday morning. Cell phone data and CCTV footage were the foundations of this case. Their combined power in locating Rowland and recording events in their database logs left Rowland's defense team with little comeback. Let's talk about phones for a minute. You heard a lot of testimony from Agent Dove and Mr. Grafsky about the phones in this case. And they told you just about everything you could possibly want to know about how cell phones work. More importantly, they told you about Mr. Rowland's phone and Ms. Josephson's phones tracking together as they leave Five Points, as I've talked about earlier. And again, they tell you about it going to Rosewood. They then track his phone back all the way to Sumter, through Sumter to New Zion, and then back 
to Columbia. This was from the defendant's Verizon iPhone. They couldn't get GPS location on it because they couldn't get in the phone. It was passcode protected. But Agent Grabsky, or Mr. Grabsky now, he told you about the tower data. And while that phone didn't have minutes on it, he couldn't make phone calls on it, he could use Wi-Fi. And what did Grabsky tell you? When there's Wi-Fi, your phone's bouncing on those towers. Your phone and that tower, they're talking. Whether you're using the phone or not, it's talking. And it's tracking. And it tracked him from Columbia up 378 through Sumter to the area where the body was found. And then right back through Sumter. Except this time, there was a stop in Sumter. At 5.35 a.m. on that Friday, March 29th, a security camera inside an ATM in Sumter captures a figure walking towards it. At Westmark Plaza in Sumter, the Wells Fargo ATM sits facing Broad Street. Deserted at this time in the morning, no vehicle passes and no people walk by. As the figure gets closer, they stand directly in front of the ATM and insert a bank card into the machine. The cash machine continues to record as the figure enters the wrong pin twice over four minutes in attempt to withdraw cash. The bank account they were trying to access was Samantha Josephson's. The figure wore a heavy black leather jacket, held up across his face with black gloved hands to keep his identity hidden. A black hoodie is underneath with the hood up to help hide his face. Two long white drawstrings from the hoodie below are visible hanging down across his chest. A second camera located above the machine captured the color version of these attempted transactions. The figure is wearing a light-colored shirt that can be seen sticking out beneath the jacket. He has on black pants and black and red flip-flop slides. That figure is Nathaniel Rowland. Unsuccessful in his withdrawal attempts, Rowland walks back to his vehicle. One hour later, he's at a different ATM. Now he's in Hampton Hills in Columbia. Once again, he's caught on camera. Once again, the machine logs his actions. He tries to withdraw cash from Samantha's bank account nine separate times. Each time failed. He left empty-handed. By now it was early morning and Columbia was starting to awaken for the day ahead. Straight from his failed attempts at the Columbia ATM, Roland arrived at Maria's house that morning to take her to work. Late and with a vehicle covered in blood, he showed no signs of the horror he had inflicted just hours earlier. He appeared calm, in control, and unfazed. The agreement he made with Maria that day was to pick her up after her shift ended. He didn't show up. By the time she did make it home, she found Roland startled and with the vehicle smelling strongly of bleach. Maria Howard would be one of the prosecution's star witnesses. Her evidence against Roland was critical and damning. Who was supposed to take pick you up from work that day? He was supposed to pick me up. How did y'all decide that? I told him that what time that I got off, and he said that he would be there to pick me up. And was he there to pick you up? No. Okay. And before that, did he tell you what he was going to go do while you were at work? Clean his car. Um, did he have your keys? Yes. Why did he still have your keys? Because I was worried about getting to work, and I, he looked like he was sleepy, so I let him get the key to go in the house to go to sleep. Did do you all talk about him being tired or sleepy? No. Okay. You just thought he was? The way he looked. And so you go to work. How did you get home if he didn't? A co-worker brought me home. Okay. So what did you do when you got home? I bammed on the door. Why? <laughs> because I didn't have my key, and he didn't pick me up from work, and I was mad. 
And I just realized I didn't ask you something. When he picked you up, what was he wearing? When he picked you up to take you to work, what was he wearing? The same clothes. The same clothes from when? Thursday. When you got home and banged on the door, did he answer? Yes. And what did, what happened when he came to the door? He looked shook. And what do you mean by look shook? Like he seen a ghost. And how did you bang on that door? Hard, like the police. Banged on it like the police. Mm -hmm. And when he when he looked, he looked shook. Mm -hmm. He showed up. Yes, ma'am. Right. What did he have on when he came to the door looking shook? The same clothes. And what did you do once you got in the house? I went and took my shower and everything from work. So what did you do after you got out of the shower? I put my clothes on and I went outside. And what was he doing? Cleaning the car. Okay. Did you all clean in the car how? Like scrubbing it with something. Could you tell what he was cleaning it with? It smelled like, the car smelled like chlorine. And I'm gonna break that down. You say it smelled like chlorine. When did you first notice it smelled like chlorine? When you were going to work or after you After I got off work. Okay. Were, you said you went outside. Were you standing by the car? Like how? Yes, ma'am. You said, and I, I interrupted you, you said he was cleaning and you could smell chlorine? It was bleach, but it was so strong it smelled like chlorine. Did you get, did you see him in the car cleaning or what did you see? The bleach bottles on the seat and the door is open. All right. Did you help him clean? No. Why not? It's not my car. So, do y'all get back in the car? Yes, ma'am. And at that point, who's driving when you get back in? I was. Why? I needed to go to my mom's house and get my rent money. All right. And when you get in the car, did you have to do anything with the seat? I had to adjust the seat. Why? To my height. Does his seat, is it upright or laid back? When he's driving, it's laid back, but when I drive, it's up. And so where do you go? To my mom's house. And you're driving? Yes. Do you stop anywhere? I had to go to the ATM. Okay. And while you're driving, what is he doing? Cleaning the car, still. Still clean, with what? Like some type of wipes. Okay. Did you ask him about that? Yeah. What'd you ask him? Where do you get them from? Why are you cleaning the car with wipes? What'd he say? Not my business. And what, if anything, does he have on, have on his hands when he's doing this? He had, like, the surgical gloves. What do you mean by surgical? The blue surgical gloves. And did you see him clean anything besides the interior of the car? This little hunter's knife-like thing. I'm going to show you what the mark of the state's exhibit number 13 and ask if you recognize that. Yes, ma'am. What is that? The thing that he was cleaning. And does that fairly and accurately depict the way it looked when you saw it? Yes, ma'am. This time I'd ask to introduce state's exhibit number 13 into evidence. Yes, ma'am. And when was he doing this? While I was driving down the road. Had you ever seen him pull that tool out and clean it before that night? No, ma'am. So, had you seen him with that previously? He showed it to me, but it wasn't open. Okay, so you, this wasn't the first time you'd seen it, it was the first time you'd seen it open. Open, yes ma'am. So you're driving around and he's cleaning the tool in the car. Yes ma'am. Right. 
do you go to your mom's? Yes, ma'am. And were you able to get the money? Yes, ma'am. Right. What do you do after that? I went back home to Mountain Brook and to wait on my landlord to pay my rent. All right. Um, where's your daughter? She was at daycare. Okay. Do you have, ever have to go get her that day? Yes, because I forgot she was at daycare. I was so tired. Okay. So who was supposed to pick her up? My mom was supposed to pick her up. Did she? But she didn't. So what did you have to do because of that? I had to drive his car to go get her. Okay. Did he go with you? Yes. And so you go to, what, where, what side of town was she located? Killian. Killian, okay. So you go there and pick her up? Yes, ma'am. All right, where does she sit? In the back, on um, the passenger side, in Did, her seat. In her seat. So was it behind the driver or behind the passenger? The passenger. All right, did you put her in the car? Yes, ma'am. Was there any conversation between you and Mr. Rowland about her getting in the car? He told me he don't want her in the car, but I had no choice but to go get her. Did he tell you why? Because there was blood in the car. So, but you have to go get her, you said? Mm-hmm. So what did you do? I went and got my baby. Okay. The object Maria is referring to is a steel multi-tool. When folded, it fits into the palm of your hand. When the two arms are pulled apart and opened out, Individual tools can be clicked out for use and folded back into the tool when not. Two of these are small but sharp knives. When opened at the same time, this turns the multi-tool into a handheld metal lethal weapon. On that Friday evening, Roland remained at Maria's house. Two friends arrived later and he left in his Impala with them sometime after midnight. He told Maria he was going to Five Points. This is an individual who had no remorse, no shame, and no fear about what he had done the night before. His feeble attempts to clean his car of Samantha's blood showed no panic and no concern. With the car still extensively stained with blood, Roland happily drove away and back to the Five Points area with friends inside. These are not the actions of a man horrified and confused as to why the interior of his beloved Impala was drenched in blood. Roland knew exactly why. He knew the blood of the missing girl was all over his vehicle, yet had no hesitation in driving around in it. The arrogance behind this decision shows a man without any conscience at all. Less than two hours later, when Roland was arrested in Saluda Avenue, police took custody of the Impala. A cursory look into the interior had told them they needed crime scene techs out there. To preserve continuity in the case, Senior investigators asked the same crime scene analysts with the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, who processed Samantha's body out in New Zion to process Roland's Impala. They received the call at 3 a.m. and were on scene by 3.30. After processing the scene, the Impala was taken to SLED's lab space. They would spend the next two days examining the vehicle and collecting evidence. The SLED agents found large quantities of blood concentrated in the back seats. It was in such high volume, it had soaked through the fabric of the seats and deep down into the foam. Blood was found to have collected underneath the seats where it had seeped through gaps and into the seatbelt latch areas. Items of clothing that matched those worn by the figure at the ATMs were found in the trunk. A black leather jacket stained with blood. A black beanie hat and red and black slides, both stained with blood. On the inside of the rear windows, there were imprints on the glass. They were imprints that looked like the soles of bare feet. Forensic impressions were taken and analyzed and compared directly against the prints of Samantha's bare feet taken at autopsy. 
My name is Kimberly Mears. Last name is spelled M-E-A-R-S. Agent Mears, good morning. Hi. Can you tell this jury um, who you are, where you're employed, and what you do? I am employed by the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, which is commonly known as SLED, and I am a forensic scientist in the latent print department. And what were your conclusions regarding each of those um, impressions? All four of those were identified to the footprints bearing the name Samantha Josephson. Can you tell what part of the foot, uh, what print that came from, say, part of the foot, the toes, anything of that nature? All came from the toes of her right foot. Okay. And then moving to 113.2. What is that, what is the latent impression from 113.2.1? That is also a crime scene uh, image of the rear driver's side door window interior. And what was your conclusion regarding that comparison? That image had one impression sub-itemed from it, so 113.2.1 was also identified to the footprints of Samantha Josephson. Which part of the foot made that impression? That impression came from the heel area of her left foot. So the previous item you said was the right foot, but this one's from the left foot, is that right? That is correct. And then lastly, in regards to this particular uh, set of impressions, 113.3. That is uh, an additional crime scene image and had one impression sub-itemed from it. So 113.3.1 was also identified to the footprints of Samantha Josephson. Which part of her foot? This was the right foot planter area, which is um, essentially under your smaller toes. As Samantha was being stabbed inside the Impala, she was fighting to escape and move away from her attacker. Her feet, now without her white sandals, kicking and pressing against the rear window as she fought for her life. Impressions on the glass that confirmed without any doubt that Samantha Josephson had been inside that vehicle. The prints she left behind and the injuries on her body were now the evidence that screamed out what had happened to her. Now looking at uh, dates, 356, tell the jury what you're seeing here. So this is a photo taken at the time of autopsy. Um, then we're looking at her back, and now she's rolled up on her side. So, um, so we're looking at the left side, that's being her left arm at the top, and her right shoulder at the bottom. And um, we have cleaned her up. Oh, we have cleaned her up, so we've washed off uh, blood and things like that that might have obscured the injuries. But we still see a lot of, um, of of these, this sort of the skin is sort of uh, abraded off. And this, these yellow, sort of yellow waxy looking things, that's all insect activity. So that's from ant, and this specific insects are ants in this case. So ants have uh, taken and started to kind of um, uh, take off the superficial layers of her skin. Um, but there are also injuries here, and so we can see a stab wound here, a stab wound here, and a stab wound here, and a stab wound here. So she has 
She has a number of stab wounds on, the, on what I would call the uh, flank area, so in this area of her back. Um, this, these wounds, um, uh, one of these goes actually into the lung, but then uh, the other ones don't penetrate any internal organs. They go superficially, um, centimeter or two, but not, not into an internal organ. Explain to the jury what we're looking at here. So this um, uh, is the right shoulder and part of the right neck. So she's laying on her back, um, and the right shoulder is here in the center. Up to the uh, far right corner of the frame is her um, right ear and um, some of the injuries on, on, on her right neck. But I'm going to come around you so make sure the jurors are able to see that. So, so what we have are um, a, a multiple stab wounds in this small area. So in forensic pathology, we like to think of things that are close together in space are close together in time. So um, these injuries would be um, from rapidly inflicting stab wounds. Because they're all very close together, some of them are overlapping. And there's a couple in here that caught my attention um, almost immediately. And they're parallel. They're two parallel cuts. And we will see others like that. And that, to me, I said, I, that's unique. Um, it's, it's very difficult to put wounds exactly spaced apart and exactly parallel. And so um, it made me think that we were dealing with an odd weapon and that we would be able to identify this weapon. So, um, so this is the first real kind of clue I started thinking about is when I saw that right there. Yes, sir. And um, that made me start to think about uh, the type of weapon being perhaps not, perhaps not just generic knife, but maybe now something unique. Nathaniel Rowland did not take the stand in his own defense. Now, 27 years old, he sat behind the defense table each day in smart, brightly colored shirts in purple and red, with ties in matching colors. Gone were his hoodies and bandanas. He was smart and presentable and always, as COVID regulations dictated, wore a mask. His eyes above his mask watched what was happening, alternating between curiosity, surprise, and boredom. When Maria Howard was on the stand, his attention was sharp, his eyes expressive. He waited for her answers with an intense stare. He was more animated during her evidence than at any other time, scribbling notes to his defense attorney. During the medical examiner's evidence, he returned to watching, stifling yawns and looking uninterested. His defense mounted by public defenders was a very basic and unconvincing one. He could not dispute the blood evidence inside the vehicle, the clear and concrete evidence that Samantha Josephson had been inside his Impala. He could not dispute he was driving this vehicle around five points with her blood in the back. His defense instead claimed that while these were not the best choices for him to have made, none of them made their client a killer. So far, none of the CCTV footage in the case had captured a clear facial image of Nathaniel Rowland. The driver outside the bird dog had the advantage of darkness to obscure his face. At the ATMs, the figure had kept their face covered. But at 11 a.m., the morning after Samantha had been kidnapped and murdered, Nathaniel Rowland walked into a cell phone store. On Friday, March 29, 2019, 
The store's multiple cameras recorded Nathaniel Rowland entering the store and trying to sell the owner an iPhone 7 Plus with a rose gold cover. Rowland was dressed in a black Nike hoodie with white drawstrings, black pants, and black and red slides. He wanted $300 for the iPhone, spending over 20 minutes trying to negotiate with the store owner, Mr. Williams, who was offering him half that amount. Eventually, Roland gave up, took the cell phone back, and left the store. Later that evening when he was arrested, that same rose gold iPhone was found in the center console of his Impala. The iPhone was Samantha Josephson's cell phone, the cell phone she'd been using just 24 hours earlier to chat with her boyfriend, the cell phone she used to book her Uber ride home. Along with the iPhone, there was another item of interest found in the front of Roland's Impala. A typed letter was located in the glove box. It was an eviction notice with an address in the corner, 7525 Mountain Brook, Columbia, Maria Howard's home address. Officers were dispatched to the address to find out the occupant's connection to Roland, and a search warrant was issued for the house. As sled agents arrived and began moving their way through Maria's duplex and out into the small grounds, they searched the trash bins out the back of the residence. What they found stuffed inside one trash bin seemed an endless supply of highly significant evidence. Wrapped in various black and white grocery bags, crime scene agents found the steel multi-tool. Both blades were still flipped out and both were stained with blood. They found clothes, dark-colored pants, a Nike hoodie with white drawstrings, a khaki-colored shirt. All were stained with blood. There were bed sheets, cleaning supplies, wipes and tissues, a black glove. All had been rolled up and stuffed into bags and thrown into the trash bin. All were saturated with Samantha's blood. When prosecutors presented Dr. Beaver with that multi-tool on the stand, things began to make sense for the forensic pathologist and how Samantha was killed. Yes, sir. I'm handing you now what's state's exhibit number 295. You referenced multiple times well, tell us what, you, what you're seeing with that, that interests you as you look at this. Um, this knife has uh, two, two blades, and um, they are relatively parallel. Um, they are bent at the tip, and um, they're the size appropriate for the wounds that I saw. Um, this is... This is a, a, this is, this is the weapon. And as you look at this, based on your 29 years as a forensic pathologist, do you have an opinion as to that weapon and the, the injuries that Samantha Josephson sustained? Yes, the, the, the parallel cuts are made by this. Now, did you see, may I have uh, state number 225 back, please? Did you see some singular stab wounds as well? Yes, yes, and, and many, in fact, the majority of the stab wounds were singular stab wounds. Let me hand that to you. So, speak, please speak to the jury. Yes, sir, so once this is pulled apart like this, now it's a single-bladed weapon. So that's one of the things that was confusing me at the autopsy was I thought there must be two weapons because there was the parallel blade ones and then there were the single ones. So I thought 
it's unusual to have two weapons. But now I think it's explained, it's explained to my satisfaction that this is the, this is the, the knife in this confirmation would make the parallel wounds that I saw. And then if it's in this confirmation, it could then make the single stab wounds. Thank you, sir. Now, as you perform this, all the time, well, I was ready for that question. How much blood does the human body only contain? It's about, about four or five liters. Four or five liters? Yes, sir. And so in, uh, in U.S. metrics and American metrics, what is that? Uh, it's probably a, close to a gallon. Okay. And so as you perform the autopsy on Ms. Josephson, how much blood was found in her body? It was not a lot. Um, I found 20 milliliters in the pleural cavity, right pleural cavity, and really um, we, had, we had difficulty obtaining the blood that we used for toxicology. And so 20 milliliters is about how much, if you could, in, again, in layman's terms, tell us what 20 milliliters yeah, maybe, looks like. Maybe uh, an eighth of a cup. Okay. So about this much? Yes, yeah, a couple tablespoons, maybe three. So based on the wounds that you saw and the fact that about five liters of blood should be in a human body, yes, where sir. would you expect the blood to be found in this type of um, activity, in this type of case? The, she's going to bleed out. She's going to bleed out, you said? Yes, sir. Okay. And, um, one of the neck wounds involves the carotid artery and the jugular vein. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about it much, but, mm -hmm. but uh, that, that wound would produce a lot of blood flow. Okay. And you'd expect to find that blood where? Wherever, she, wherever it took place, wherever there were, these uh, wounds were inflicted. The blood would come out immediately, um, just like the hose analogy. On Monday, June 27th, 2021, after seven days of evidence, the prosecution rested their case. The state of South Carolina had been able to walk the jury gently through every aspect of their case. Their timeline of events was presented in graphic detail. Over 30 witnesses provided testimony, stacking up each piece of evidence high on top of Nathaniel Rowland. Not one of those witnesses was for the defense. There was little to no cross-examination of the state's witnesses by his defense team. They rested their case immediately after the state and moved straight to closing arguments. Now the problems with this case, the way I see it, is that back in March of 2019, everybody, everybody started jumping to conclusions and just making up their minds on something. When we know on March 30th of 2019, law enforcement literally knew nothing. What they knew was that Samantha Josephson had gone missing. What they knew was that her body had been located in Clarendon County. And what they knew at that point is that Nathaniel Rowland had been pulled over by Officer Kraft and there was liquid in the car that they at that point suspected was blood. The initial report came back from the lab confirming that it was in fact blood. Nobody has stood up here and said 
that Samantha Joseph's blood was not in that car. Nobody has stood up here and said that, that Nathaniel Rowland was not the one driving the car. But her blood being in the car and Nathaniel Rowland driving the car does not mean that he is the one that killed him. Guilt, I'm sorry, killed her. And that is what this trial is about. He's not charged with driving a car. He's not charged with selling it, trying to sell a cell phone. He's not charged with not calling the police when he should have. He's charged with murder. He is charged with kidnapping. And he is charged with possessing the weapon during those two crimes. Making poor choices, not, not calling law enforcement, riding around in a car you know that you should not be driving around in, does not mean that you are guilty of murder. It does not mean that you are guilty of kidnapping. March 29, 2019, the unthinkable did happen. Samantha Josephson's life was cut short in the most violent way. Don't let your emotions, the fact that this is a sad, tragic, heartbreaking case, dictate your decision when you go deliberate. That's what I can ask of you. The state has not proven that Nathaniel Rowland kidnapped Samantha Josephson. They have not proven that he has killed her, and they have not proven that he had a weapon during those crimes. That. They have failed at meeting their burden. I ask that you find him not guilty. Thank you. Nathaniel Rowland grew up in Clarendon County as the youngest of four children less than two miles away from where he dumped Samantha's body. Before the trial, family and neighbors described him as a caring young man with his own aspirations to go into business and make a success of himself. He finished high school, attended college for a time, studying business. He was a good and dedicated athlete. Yet by the time his case came to trial, Roland had no one on the stand defending him or supporting his claims that he wasn't the killer. He did not explain his whereabouts on March 28, 2019. No alibi to support his claim that he was not the driver of his own Impala caught on camera kidnapping Samantha. He could not offer an alternative, another suspect, or any credible defense whatsoever that introduced doubt that he was not the person who carried out this savage murder. When it was the prosecution's turn to close, they reviewed the evidence they had painstakingly presented. They focused on Samantha's blood in Rollins's vehicle, the cell phone data, and CCTV footage his possession of her belongings. In their favor was the series of absurd facts the jury would have to believe to even consider that Nathaniel Rowland was not guilty. Some of you might be thinking, how could anyone be calm enough? How could anyone be calm enough to drive for hours? The blood and or a dead girl in the back of your car. How do you not freak out when your girlfriend keeps asking you about all this blood? could anyone go back to five points, a block away from where this happened, and not be nervous that they'd get caught? He thought he'd gotten rid of all the evidence at this point, right? But what he failed to consider 
was that he was driving around in the actual crime scene. And at that point, though, think about what he knew. He didn't know that law enforcement was looking for an Impala. At best, he only knew they were looking for some girl who was missing. A couple things I want to cover before I finish. Let's talk about common sense. You take your common sense in that jury room with you, and you use it when you look at this evidence and apply it as though the law tells you. Despite all of the evidence that has been presented to you that points squarely at Mr. Roller, is there another theory that's supported by credible evidence about who could have done this? Use your common sense. Think. You would have to believe that not only did some other person kill Samantha Josephson, but that person was wearing Nathaniel Rowland's hoodie with the drawstrings, his pants, his money bandana, and his slots. You would also have to believe that this other person drove Nathaniel Rowland's car, used Nathaniel Rowland's knife, and had possession of Nathaniel Rowland's phone. Even if you believed all that, you would still have to believe that this other person drove on March 29th in the early morning hours to New Zion, of all places, in the middle of nowhere. And when they were there, that this person figured out a way to get into Nathaniel Rowland's passcode-protected phone to look at a porn site? Of all the places in the world to dump a body, this person would have just picked a random, secluded spot about a mile away from the Roland house. If that's not enough, then you would have to believe that this person somehow found a way to get Nathaniel Roland's Chevy Impala back to him without anybody knowing. Ladies and gentlemen, the state of South Carolina humbly ask that upon consideration of all the evidence, you return a verdict and you find Nathaniel Rowland guilty of murder, guilty of kidnapping, and guilty of possessing a weapon. Thank you. The detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are gonna judge you, right? Of course, they're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? 
American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. The jury, made up of seven women and five men, had sat engaged and focused as they watched and listened to events in the courtroom for the duration of the trial. Once they left the courtroom to begin deliberations, the torturous waiting began for Samantha's family. They had attended each day of the trial heard the horrific evidence of what their daughter had been put through. The pain and suffering she endured, they were left desperately trying to find a way to live with. Thank you. Uh, Madam Forelady, if you'll stand for me, please. Uh, have you reached a verdict? Yes, sir, we have. Is it unanimous? Yes, sir, it is. Okay, if you will pass it up, please, and you may be seated. The defendant will rise. Madam Clerk, you may publish the verdicts. The document number 2019 GS40-2528 the State of South Carolina versus, versus Nathaniel David Rowland is an indictment for possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. We the, we the jury find the defendant guilty. We assign four person jury on the one party. July 27th. throughout the trial, Your Honor, and we would ask at this time for a new trial based on the brevity of the deliberations. Um, the court was presented with at least 32 witnesses, over 300 pieces of evidence, um, and by my count, Your Honor, the jury was out for an hour and seven minutes. Um, so we would ask for a new trial um, based on the brevity of the deliberations from the jury. Uh, with regard to the uh, what's the defense says is the is the brevity of the deliberations 
um, the state presented a clear, cogent, convincing, and overwhelming case of guilt. Uh, the evidence was clear for the jury to see during the course of the past week. The jury reviewed the evidence in one hour and seven minutes. Uh, was a sufficient time for them to do that. And uh, I respectfully deny the motion. Roland showed no emotion as the verdicts were read. The weight of the evidence against him was so heavy the jury had very little to deliberate about. Their verdict was unanimous. After Sammy got into the back of his vehicle, he could have told her the truth, that he wasn't her Uber ride. After driving away, he could have stopped what he was doing and let her out of the Impala. He did none of these things. Instead, he drove Samantha to a secluded area in the dead of night, where no one would hear her scream. As the now-convicted killer came before the judge for sentencing, it came as a surprise that he did have something to say when asked by the judge. If the uh, defendant will come before the court for sentencing. Mr. Roland, during my time on the bench, uh, I have presided over many murder trials. This is the first time, however, that I've presided over a case where a victim was stabbed 120 times. Is there anything you would like to say? Um, Your Honor, um, I know I'm innocent. Um, but I guess what I know and what I think really doesn't matter. I just wish the state would have would have done more in finding out who the actual person was. Instead of being satisfied with with detaining me and proving my guilt. I feel like they if they would have done further research in certain areas. That's all y'all. And I've sent evidence in this case was so overwhelming. The law enforcement in this case did the best job of investigating a case that I have seen over the past 30 or 40 years. And all of the evidence, every speck of the evidence, not simply beyond a reasonable doubt, but as high a standard as the law requires all points to your guilt. And I am absolutely satisfied. And um, I have dealt with the heartless. And you fall into that category. A person without any remorse whatsoever. Today's with forensic evidence your whole 24 hours was recreated almost minute by minute, mile by mile, digit by digit that's led you here and you've now been found guilty. And sentencing in this case is not difficult. Sentence in this case is easy. 
though painful it may be. The sentence of the court for murder is that you be committed to the State Department of Corrections for life. Any other sentence that can be imposed will be concurrent with life. Since you only have one life, that sentence must be served for the remaining days of your natural life. That's the sentence of the court. Even after conviction with all 12 jurors unanimously voting for his guilt on all three charges, Nathaniel Rowland remained steadfast in his claims of innocence. Moral conscience, regret, or remorse were not featured in his only opportunity to address the judge. Quiet mumbles from his defense attorney behind her mask were what stopped his speech of self-pity and blame. Rowland's pitiful speech of innocence failed to mention previous charges levied against him in connection with the alleged kidnapping of another woman. Six months before Samantha's murder, Nathaniel Rowland was charged with obtaining goods under false pretenses valued at $2,000 or less. He had allegedly sold items at a pawn shop that had been stolen from an unidentified woman in a carjacking and home robbery earlier the same day. The woman had been assaulted and forced to drive to an ATM and then to her own home. Two men robbed her before fleeing the scene. Rowland was not charged with the carjacking and kidnapping, but the details of this alleged crime in light of his actions just months later are chilling. For the Josephson family, the monster who murdered their daughter was now never going to be released from prison. He will spend each day of his life in the custody of the state and behind prison bars. When you are 27 years old, that is a very long time. Their passionate and dignified pleas to keep this man behind bars had been heard. After Samantha was murdered, the Josephson family dedicated themselves to making rideshares like Uber Safer and making sure no one ever forgot their daughter's name. Their foundation in her honor, campaigns to get rideshare safety information into the public domain and to everyone who uses these services. They asked people to remember Sammy's name and her initials. S. Stop and plan ahead for your journey. A. Ask the driver, what's my name, before getting into the vehicle. M. Match the model and license plate number on the rideshare that arrives to the information in the app before getting in. I. Inform someone else of your trip so someone knows where you are and that you are getting into a rideshare. In 2019, the governor of New Jersey signed a new piece of legislation called Sammy's Law. This law was written to make sure ride operators like Uber and Lyft show two forms of identification on their vehicles. One clearly displayed at the front and one at the back so riders can safely identify them. A year later, the U.S. House of Representatives passed Sammy's Law ensuring rideshares will be safer, any incidents will be reported, and a new 15-member panel will be in place to continue focus on the safety of these services. Marcy and Seymour Josephson hope to take Sammy's Law to the Senate. Samantha Josephson should have graduated from college in May 2019, ready to start her law scholarship at Drexel University in Philadelphia in the fall. The University of South Carolina awarded Samantha a posthumous degree and laid out her hat and gown on the chair that would have been hers at the ceremony. Nathaniel Rowland made the decision to take Samantha's life that night in 2019. Stealing her cell phone and bank card are dismally feeble motives to commit such a barbaric murder. To do what he did requires an internal darkness driven by an undercurrent of twisted cognitions he has managed to keep under the radar. This level of depravity and extreme violence doesn't arrive unexpectedly and on impulse. 
It is cultivated, practiced, and increased in severity until it reaches this unthinkable ferocity. To inflict that level of ongoing torture and pain to another human being, continuing the blows until Samantha lay still and lifeless, is beyond heinous. It's a ruthless attack that belongs in the realms of evil, the suffering Roland witnessed during his trial. The pain, anguish, and devastating heartache from her family had no impact on his arrogant self-regard and pitiful pleas of innocence. Nathaniel Rowland is a predator who will likely never admit what he's done. He has 50, maybe 60 years ahead of him. Every single day will be repetitive. It will be without stimulation and without freedom. The enclosing walls of prison will be his cage. A cage where this animal belongs. <laughs>